0: Exodus chapter 28 tonight, Exodus 28, if we could title Exodus 28, 29, probably title it the designing the priesthood, because that's what God is doing in these chapters. He's designing what the priests are going to wear, what they're going to eat, what their, uh, their uh, ordination is going to be like. It's, it's fascinating as we're moving through this. And Last week we began in chapter 28. We did the first about 12 verses or so. I want to start again in chat, in verse 1 of 28, just so we have some context for where we're going tonight. Let's pray first. Father again bless the study of your word tonight Spirit help us to see things with eyes of faith and understanding and uh, Touch us with some of the deep realities that are embedded in this passage Father we just, we just hand this time to you now And uh, we're excited to see what you're going to share and what you're going to touch us with So come Lord Jesus in your name we pray Amen well, verse 1, God says, Bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I, whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister as priest to me. These are the garments in which they shall make, a breast piece and an ephod, and a robe and a tunic of checkered work, a turban and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. And they shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. They shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workmen. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends, that it may be joined. The skillfully woven band, or some translations say the curiously woven band, which is on it, shall be like its workmanship, of the same material, of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. And you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone... And the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As the jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold and put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. You shall make filigree settings of gold and two chains of pure gold. You shall make them of twisted cordage work, and you shall put the corded chain, corded chain, on the filigree settings. Garments of the high priest. We saw last week there are six of them, six items to the high priest outfit: the ephod, the sash, the breastpiece, the robe, the turban, and the tunic. Recognizing the number six is important in the Bible as the number of a man. We talked about last week that the high priest was just that. Though he prefigures Christ, he is still not Christ and still not capable of doing what Christ did in his perfect redeeming work. So this priest wearing these six elements of this garment, picture of a man who can never quite do what is required, but Jesus did. But we're going to go on tonight, but before we do, you may want to keep a running tally of these six items making up the high priestly garments. For you see, again, the imperfect high priest prefigures the perfect high priest. And the ephod that we talked about last week, the ephod, which is a vest, it's an apron of sorts, and hung down just below the waist, it didn't have any sleeves on, and it had a front piece and a back piece joined at the top. It was held together by those two onyx stones, six names of the children of Israel on one, six names on the other, all twelve names on it. And this ephod was held together this way and it signifies authority in the Bible. We talked last week about Gideon and his golden ephod and that golden mess that he made of things. And you can read about that in the book of Judges and the story of Gideon. But the ephod speaks of the authority of Christ. It's interesting, Matthew 28.18, one of the last things Jesus said before he ascended, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The word authority is exousia. It means literally the right to rule. The right to power. Jurisdiction over all things. Jesus said, I have been given all authority. Now that can be a little confusing. Because if Jesus is God, wouldn't he already have all authority? So how can he be given authority if he already had it, if he was God? How does that work? As a matter of fact, this whole relationship of Jesus and God is interesting and still kind of trips us up from time to time. We talk about the deity of Christ. We see the Bible is clear about the deity of Christ. And yet we see Jesus in a role of son to God his Father. And we try to figure that out. Well, Paul has some words on that. And I'd like you to flip over to 1 Corinthians for a few minutes tonight. Chapter 15. Chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to understand a little bit more of the authority of Christ and where His authority comes from and how that works in relationship to the Father, the authority of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 22, we'll start reading there. Well, let's go back to verse 20. It's a great verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Paul writes... But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. What's he saying? He's just saying that Jesus is the first person to raise from the dead and not die again. We said before, Lazarus raised from the dead, but he would have yet another funeral. Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader's daughter, would be raised from the dead, but she ultimately would have a funeral. Jesus is the only one raised from the dead with no funeral. No return, no need for a second funeral. He's still alive. Going on, for since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. And then, verse 24, comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has established, or I'm sorry, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power and all flybys, no, sorry, not there. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he's abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now listen closely to this verse. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. What what does that mean? I mean, do you get that? Let me read it again. It it can be confusing. It's some of that Pauline language that Paul writes, and and he's just, you can just just imagine the pen is just flying as Paul is getting these words out, and the people are getting it and going, What? For he, speaking of God, has put all things in subjection under his, Jesus, feet. So, God gave Jesus that authority, put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, Jesus. In other words, God put everything under Jesus' feet except God. He is the exception to the rule. Okay? How does that work? What does that mean? How does Father and Son, God, Jesus, how does that relationship work? Who's the boss? And this is the thing that we've asked before and continues to be asked. Who do I pray to? Who do I really go to? I want to go to the number one guy. So is it God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son? And how does it work? And the answer to the question, is it God or is it Jesus, is yes. It is. Absolutely. You're right. You're right on target. But which one is the boss? Well, Paul goes on and makes it clear in verses 27 and 28. Look at verse 28. He says, When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. Now, if you read that, you might say, Okay. So it sounds like God put everything in subjection under Jesus' feet And then when it's all said and done Jesus is going to subject himself underneath God too So that means God the Father is the higher of the two, right? No What you're seeing here is the perfect, the ultimate authority This is how it works What is it that the Bible tells us all throughout Jesus taught over and over and over You who would be master of all or or, or who would be above all Needs to be slave of all In God's economy, being in subjection, submitting yourself, being one who is in submission, is a higher place than the one who's the boss what you're seeing here in these scriptures as Paul is writing is that God the Father and Jesus the Son have this perfect balance of authority shared authority Jesus has no problem being in subjection to God the Father
1: and God the Father has no
0: problem putting everything in subjection under Jesus and saying yes He is King of Kings He is Lord of Lords He is God worship Him God the Father points to Jesus and says, Worship Him. And Jesus says, Worship Him. And either way, you are worshiping Him. They have no problem being subjected to each other. Read on just a little bit further here. Well, no, don't read on. Stay right there.
1: The father and son have no
0: problem whatsoever being in subjection to one another. As one God, they share one throne, one authority, one right to rule. They share it as one God. I hope that cleared it up for you. In the same way, by the way, with the high priest, and you flip back to Exodus, only one person wore the ephod only one and you'll see as we get on down toward the end of the chapter what the rest of the priests wore but there was only one priest the high priest alone wore the ephod had the authority had the right given by God to actually enter the Holy of Holies to actually serve as high priest one authority one rule the rest of the priests didn't have an ephod at all it's interesting in the church today neither do the elders or the pastors have the ephod For the authority. Because as the high priest prefigures Christ, so in the church today, Christ is our high priest. He is our authority. And there is no other. Elders and pastors are a a way that God provides for some kind of organization. But they are not your authority. They are not boss over you. We are one body in Christ. And leadership as we so often call it, is not a matter of who's in charge, it's a matter of who is serving. Who, who the shepherds are are the servants. Who the pastors are are those who serve the flock. And so if you want to be great in the church, then submit. If you want to be above, then put yourself beneath. If you want to be like Jesus, then subject yourself to others who are in Christ. That's the model we see. We are in subjection to Christ Jesus. Revelation 19.15 tells us He will rule them with a rod of iron. When He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And by the way, isn't it great to know the boss? I was just talking to Barb before we started tonight. just Now that we're settled in our house the debt hit me.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm thinking how in the world are we going to do this I don't know three years from now we may be moving it again <laughs> it's whatever God wants but isn't it great to know the boss I just got to share this real quick a little side note control is an illusion it's an illusion, it's a mind game that we play with ourselves, that we have some control or some semblance of authority over our lives. We don't. I was leaving the house Sunday morning, had my guitar strapped on my shoulder, I was about to walk out the door, and I look, my office is right to the right of the front door, as so I'm just about to head out. There's Cheryl sitting there strapping on her running shoes. And yeah, I looked at her and said, What are you doing? And she said, Actually, right now I'm about to enter a marathon. Here's your sign. And what do you think I'm doing? I, I what it, what, you're, you're going running right now? yeah well where are you going to run? well I'm going to go down Quinn Drive and maybe out to Cornet Bay and back up Quinn Drive by yourself have you not been watching Fox News lately? do you not know what happens to female runners who just take off by themselves? do you really think that this is a good idea? and Cheryl and Rick had a little tension A little moment there. I said, well, you know, okay. And and so, did you even run? She didn't end up running. The controlling husband won out. (laughs) Until a couple nights later, when we sat down and we talked about it, and Cheryl reminded me of, of something that has been going on lately. That as her husband, I'm being kind of controlling. And her words about the running was this, and we're not talking about fool, We're not talking about running, you know, in, in dark, dangerous places. We're not talking about foolishness here. We're just talking about someone who wants to run. She said this comment, and it kind of drew me back. She said, "You know, when I run, I run with the Lord. It's my time with Him." And I was like,
1: oh, "Okay, came into guilt.
0: Okay, the more spiritual one out running. That's great." And she was right. And I began to see how, see, what I do in my life, and I don't know if you guys, especially you guys, are like this, but when things are out of control in other areas of my life, I control anything I can. I grab hold of anything that I can, whether it's the checkbook balance, or my children, or my wife, or those around me. You know? When everything else is out of control, this whole house thing has been so out of control. So it's like control what you can. And control is a lack of faith. Because we have no control. But we know the one who does. We know the one who does. I know I'm way off track here, but we're talking about the authority of Christ. The ephod is a symbol of that authority of the one who has control, the one who has power. And thanks for letting me confess that all to you because I feel a lot better right now. <laughs> no, we had a really good conversation, but it was a slap in the face and a reminder. We don't have control. It's an illusion. But God does. And if you're feeling out of control, run to Him and trust Him. Well, let's roll on from here. I want to go on to verse 15 here. Verse 15, we go on to the second aspect of the high priest's garment. first one was the ephod, that apron that that was worn. The second one goes on the ephod, and this is fascinating. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment or decisions. It's another translation. Make a breastpiece of judgment or decisions. The work of a skillful workman, like the work of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen you shall make it. We talked last week about that connection. Those colors continue to be seen in the high priestly garments, same colors as the tabernacle. There is a connection there in the same way that there's a connection of Christ and the church. A reading on verse 16 it shall be square this breastpiece and fold it double a span in length and a span in width. And you shall mount on it four rows of stones. Listen to these. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a barrel and an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold. Filigree. Now, if you're using a different translation than the NASB, you may see some different names for different stones, and there are different things that these stones can be called. Okay? But they're all the same stones, and they're very specific here. So you've got 12 stones set in rows of four on this breastpiece made of gold. It was beautiful. It was stunning. It was magnificent. The stones, he goes on to say, shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. You shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage work in pure gold. And you shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold, and you shall put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece, and you shall put two cords of gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece, and you shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings, and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. So you get this picture. You got the breastpiece, and it has the rings on it up at the top corners and it has gold coming up and it's hooked on to the stones the onyx stones on the shoulder of the ephod that's how it was held there sitting in front okay what verse was that we stopped on Twenty-five. So verse 26 reading on you shall make two rings of gold and place them on the two ends of the breast piece on the edge of it which is toward the inner side of the ephod and you shall make two rings of gold and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it to close the place where it is joined above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it will be on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece will not come loose from the ephod. just tied down pretty good with that blue cord. And Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart When he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. The breast piece of judgment. The word judgment again can be decision. And it's the Hebrew word mishpat. Mishpat. Meaning verdict or decision. The breast piece speaks of the judgment of Christ. The ephod speaks of the authority of Christ, but the breast piece now shows us a picture of the judgment of Christ. Now, this is interesting. Each tribe, apparently, of the twelve tribes of Israel, had its own gem. Had its own specific stone that was assigned to that tribe, connected with that tribe. Each one reflecting light in a different or a unique way. Each gem was distinctive, but all of the gems were valuable. And all of the gems were close to the, to the heart of the high priest. In the same way as the body of Christ. Now, we can bemoan the fact in the church today that there are all sorts of denominations and churches and flavors and colors of churches all over the place. And we can say, look what we've done. Look at how awful this is. How disunified we are. How how we've we've just split apart right and left and look at the shambles that the church is in today. Or, we can see it like the breastpiece on the ephod. Look at the distinctive colors. Look at the way God reaches different people in different ways in the church. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. And I believe that when God looks at the church, He sees more the gems than all the flaws and the mistakes that we tend to look at. When God, in, in, in His judgment, looks at the body of Christ, and, and remember, what, what does it take to be in the body of Christ? Belief in Jesus Christ as Lord. A number one. Have you given your life to Christ? We talked about this, I believe it was last week or the week before. The book of Acts tells us how do you get into the church in the first place? The Lord adds daily to the church those who are being saved. You cry out to the Lord. You give your life to Him. You ask Him to be the Lord of your life. And you're in the church. What does that church look like? Does it look like Christ the King? Yeah. Does it look like the bridge? Yeah. Does it look like family Bible? Yeah. Does it look like First Baptist or the assembly? Yes. Yes. All the different gems, and what's interesting, all these gems close to the heart of the high priest. Let us never, as a church body, think that we are higher than other church bodies, church families. Let's just be part of the church, and and exult in that, and revel in that, and be excited about that, and seek connection in that. But but Rick, come on now, How, how do I judge between the churches? because I want to know I want to make sure not only am I going to the right church but I want to know which ones are all the wrong ones so I can tell my friends you know how do I judge between the churches you don't Jesus does it's not my issue it's not my deal man here at the bridge we're going to teach through the world we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit we're going to do everything we can to be in Christ and follow Him and listen to Him and as other churches go you know I don't I don't have time to worry about what another church is doing on Sunday morning God is doing so much right here this is where my focus is this is where my heart is but that doesn't mean he's not doing fantastic things in other places there's a guy named Rick who about two and a half three years ago had a vision from the Lord to plant a church on the north end of Whidbey Island and call it the bridge not me a different Rick and he said I don't know if I can do that Lord I'm not sure if that's what I will. I don't know Lord and then an opportunity opened up in Coopville with a church of people mostly over the age of 80 which if you're over the age of 80 no offense I have great respect for you but, but this church is most of that and they wanted to hire him because they were looking for a young pastorly type because they realized you know, there's there's not a whole lot left under us here and if we want this church to survive, to continue to, to bring the gospel to people, we need someone. So they called this guy Rick. And now he's down in Coopville with this church. And I think that's really cool. And you know what? As much as the Lord showed up here Sunday morning, He showed up there. And because this particular Rick decided not to plant the Bridge Christian Fellowship on North Whidbey Island and was called down there, and this Rick said, okay, I was just dumb enough To say yes You know no. Why not
1: Let's give it a try
0: <laughs> you know? We're all just dumb enough To say yes I guess You know A bunch of people Just just dumb enough To actually believe, believe The Holy Spirit Knows what he's doing It's a good kind of dumb I could live in that Kind of dumb Anyway These churches here A picture of how God Calls and moves And touches And, and, and they're all gems. They're all gems. They're all beautiful. they all refract the light of Christ. That's what this, this breastpiece would do. See that the high priest would go into the tabernacle and all the candles would be lit. it would be bright and shining in there and it would begin to sparkle all over his chest. It'd sparkle off of the walls. And God was pleased with that because though there were 12 tribes that were distinctive, they were one people.' It was one people. But Rick, what about false teachings and rivalries and flat-out immorality in the church? Don't we have to be careful of that? Gang, Jesus carries the church on his shoulders. It's interesting that the two onyx stones had all the names of Israel as well as as the, the signet stones. He carries the church on his shoulders, which means it's by his authority and by his power if a church rises or falls. It's his call. And secondly, he bears the church on his heart. He loves us. He holds us close. Do you think that Jesus is not aware of problems in the church? Do you think Jesus is missing that this church over here somewhere is, is teaching wrong doctrine? Do you think that somehow got by him and we need to take care of it? The Lord's really busy, you know, right now with the, the tsunami thing. He's real busy over there, so we've got to make sure we're going after those churches. What did Jesus say to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? Man, you're doing a great job keeping an eye on things for me. But you've forgotten your first love. And so as the church, as the body, we are called to love and to allow Jesus that place of authority, of power, of judgment. Man, He will take care of it. He will. We just keep trusting and going forward. Now like gems in the breastpiece, there are a lot of colorful characters in the church and God sees them and knows them all. But he alone bears the mishpat, the final verdict, the right to judge. J. Vernon McGee says, The Lord not only carries us on his shoulders, the place of authority, but he carries us on his breast. We are engraven on his heart. He loves us. So you just be sure that you're walking with the Lord. And hold your pastor to accountability here at the bridge. I need that as much as anybody else. And let's follow Him biblically, spiritually, and let's not concern ourselves with what everyone else is doing. And God will take care of the rest. But how do I personally, or how do we here at the bridge, keep it all together? How do we avoid heresy? How do we avoid immorality, rivalry, judgment? How do we avoid all these things? And I got a picture on Sunday morning. So you're sitting here worshiping I just had this real clear picture come to me, and I believe I shared it with the elders just the other night, of of how we do that. And it's very simple. Walt Disney got it. He figured it out. Well, maybe not spiritually, but the monorail was the picture I got. Strange picture, but I'm, as we're playing, I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking about how, how things were going on, on Sunday and, and how we just had this experience. And if you weren't here Sunday, there was, a, there was a real outpouring of the Spirit, unlike we've seen. It was awesome. But as the pastor, and I tend to be on the conservative, you know, careful side, I'm, I'm watching all this, I'm going, Lord, I'm loving this. But what if it gets out of control? This is great. But what if someone starts doing stuff and I'm not used to, it, you know? And I'm, so I'm, all these thoughts are going through. And this picture of the monorail, this rail that is solid and this energy force that's driving, the rail is the Word of God, the energy is the Spirit of God. And if we have the Word and the Spirit, we don't have anything to worry about, do we? nothing to fear as long as we're in the word and what, what churches will often do is they'll get so caught up in the spirit and so wrapped up in things there that the word kind of gets left behind and then it's anybody's best guess what's going to happen because then you don't have that grounding and there are other churches some familiar to me and, and how I was brought up that are so into the word they don't have time for the spirit and so it gets really dry and legalistic But together, I know I'm a broken record on this. Over and over we talk about the Word and the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit. But that's what keeps us grounded, it's what keeps us moving, and it's what keeps us in the Lord. Well, we need to keep rolling on here. By the way, these stones are interesting to me. They ring of familiarity. There's something prophetic in their very inclusion on the breastfeed. You see, God is, as Phil said on Sunday, He is a God who plans ahead. He's a guy who knows what he's doing. He's, he's got it all worked out. And on the breast piece are these 12 stones. And then you get to the book of, the, of Revelation at the end of the Bible. Chapter 21, verse 19. Talking about the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. Check this out. The stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And the first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprace. The eleventh, jason. And the twelfth, amethyst. Twelve stones. Twelve precious stones. Twelve gems that are in the foundation wall of the New Jerusalem. And there are many scholars who believe, and I absolutely agree with this, we're talking these stones, these, uh, they're called from the Greek names, and you've got the stones in the Old Testament from the Hebrew names, but I believe they are the same stones. Same stones. So not only was God signifying on the breastpiece the children of Israel, the twelve tribes, but He was signifying something wonderful, New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. God was signifying. Check this out. New Jerusalem before Old Jerusalem was even in place for the Jewish people. Before it was even seen as capital. Before it was even won over by by David. Before it even came into existence for Israel, God's already picturing New Jerusalem that's to come. Why is that? Because I believe that's what's on the heart of God. From the very beginning, I think God was looking to the end. He he has this amazing, precious, wonderful, fantastic destination for us. And so even back with the construction, the design of the high priest's outfit, he's going, I, I cannot stop thinking about New Jerusalem. Because in that day, in that place, in that time, my children are going to be home. My family is going to be home. We will all be together and all the stuff that needs to happen between now and then will be over with and it's going to be precious and beautiful. I'm going to put those twelve stones on the breastpiece, so that every time that high priest walks into the tabernacle I'll think about New Jerusalem. Is it possible that God is excited about that? I'm absolutely convinced He is. I mean as excited as you and I may get about being with the Lord in heaven He is infinitely more excited and we are this is what he wants this is what we were created for new Jerusalem the new heavens the new earth again you think you're looking forward to it we got nothing on the Lord's excitement now there's something else intriguing going on that's connected to the breast piece look at verse 28 29 30 look at verse 30 you shall put in the breast piece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim not the Urim but the Urim and the Thummim It's an important distinction. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. The Urim and the Thummim. The actual translation here is the lights and the perfections. Lights and perfections. Or illuminations and integrity. Now, this is, this is a fascinating thing that we don't really know a whole lot about. We know that this Urim and Thummim, and it's going to be hard for me to say this and not say um, Thummim but I'm going to try not to. The Urim and the Thummim were actually placed in a, in a pocket inside the breastpiece. They were held there, again, close to the heart of the high priest. They may have been stones. They may have been some other element, something else that was, was placed in there. No one's exactly sure what the Urim and the Thummim were. But how did they work? And what, what was this all about? They, they indicated the perfect will. They indicated the revelation of God. But jot this down. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. What were these things? No one knows. We have no idea. How did they work? Write this down too. No one knows. <laughs> we don't know. But they did work. God gave these things to the high priest, and they were placed inside the breast piece. It's even thought by some rabbis that God gave these to Moses himself, and Moses passed them along. These were not something that were even made by human hands. There was something almost mystical about them. Because as they were in there, when someone came to the high priest with with a, a question for the Lord, these would indicate like the yes or the no answer. You're thinking, like magic eight ball? No, no. It's more specific. There's even some some study out there that says they interacted somehow with the gems on the breast piece to give some kind of illumination or some kind of answer. And you can get really weird and get out there, but all we really know is what the Bible tells us about the Urim and the Thummim. And here it is, three verses, Numbers 27, verse 21 is the first. And here we're talking about Joshua's ordination, his following Moses, and he's being prepared, and he's being called up to, to be the next leader of Israel. And the Lord is commanding Moses, and he says, Moreover, he, Joshua, shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So, so he's saying Joshua is going to go to Eliezer the high priest, and they're going to use the Urim to understand what it is that God would have him do. Well, how did it work? That's all we know. The second verse, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 7. David is in pursuit of the Amalekites and he seeks the Lord's direction and it says that David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech please bring me the ephod so Abiathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this band shall I overtake them and he said to them, to him, pursue for you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue them all and in that passage, the Urim and the Thummim are used again, but how? we don't know One more passage. The Israelites have returned from Babylonian captivity several hundred years later. Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 65. And this is also in Ezra chapter 2 verse 63. Same verse, same description. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. Now the only interesting difference with this verse is it sounds like that's something that was given to the priest more as a spiritual thing rather than an actual item placed in the breast piece. It implies that there was an understanding that the Urim and Thummim were more than simply two items. That they were a spiritual gift maybe given to the high priest. But we just don't know. So why is it in there? Why even mention it Lord if you're not going to explain it to us? Why is it in this history of Israel, this Urim and Thummim, that you tell explicitly for Moses to make sure is in the breastpiece of the high priest? Why is it there? We don't know. <laughs> but we do know this thing. The Urim and the Thummim are a shadow of something much greater that was to come. They're a picture, like so many things in the Old Testament, of something much greater. What's that? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Listen to John chapter 15. I'm going to just read this to you quickly. You can you can flip there if you want, but I'm going to go ahead and just start reading. John 15 and verse 1. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. I have that word circled in my Bible. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. There it is again, abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, he says, Just as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love these things Jesus said I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full listen to this the urim and the thummim were the decision the judgment of the Lord it was the answer to questions when people were confused they could go to the high priest and say I got a problem can you inquire of the Lord David goes to Abiathar please inquire inquire of the Lord about what I should do here and the Lord through the the Urim and the Thummim would respond but we don't have an Urim and a Thummim anymore we have the Holy Spirit of the living God who resides in us and we don't have to go to anyone or anything to find that answer because He is with us He is already here if I have a question if I've got confusion if I have heartache take it to the Lord I don't go through some obscure mysterious relic to find the answers of the Lord Because the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ resides in my heart. And I believe we talked about this last week, but how often do we run to the counsel of other people before we've even inquired of the Lord? Gang, we have a fantastic gift of God. Much more powerful than this mysterious Urim and Thummim. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And at any given point in our lives, we can stop and just say, God, I don't know what to do. Can you direct me? Will you guide me? Show me, give me answer and the spirit does respond Colossians chapter 1 verse 26 the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been manifested made clear seen to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles what is that mystery? it is Christ in you the hope of glory that is the mystery not the, um, the Uma and <laughs> Not the Urim and the Thummim. This thing that is mysterious, we don't know what it is, but we know the Spirit of God. And that is the mystery. Christ in you. Christ in me. So the Urim and the Thummim speak of the revelation of Christ. Ephod speaks of the authority of Christ. The breastpiece speaks of the judgment of Christ. The Urim and the Thummim speak of the revelation of Christ which is in you. Received as a child of God, as a Christian. Which, interestingly, if you add the urim and the thummim to the rest of the pieces on the whole outfit, those other six pieces, now you would have seven, which is a picture of completion. And that's where we find our completion, isn't it? When Jesus is in us, we become complete. So the urim and the thummim are the light and the perfection of God. Reading on verse 31, you shall make the robe of the ephod of all blue. And there shall be an opening in its top in the middle of it. Around its opening there shall be a binding of woven work like the opening of a coat of mail so that it will not be torn. Now the robe is fascinating. Gang, for the first time we have one color. One color. You've got the ephod picture this with the, the two onyx stones the ephod you've got the breast piece sitting on top of it. you have the sash just beneath that and underneath all of that you now have a blue robe that also was sleeveless you could see it just barely around the sleeves and around the neck at the top but you could see it coming out down below down to just about the knees this this beautiful purely blue robe what does the robe speak of it speaks of the royalty of Christ the royalty of Christ this this blue robe now underneath all of this what's interesting is this word blue translated in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word tekelith tekelith it's literally hyacinth or dark blue or better yet purple this blue was more along the lines of hyacinth or purple than it was blue does that remind you of something? there was a robe that Jesus wore It's the only time we see, recorded in the Gospels, that Jesus wore specifically a robe. I'll read it to you, Mark 15, verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium. They called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple. After twisting a crown of thorns they put it on him and they began to acclaim him Hail King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him and after they had mocked him they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. And when the Roman guards mocked Jesus what's amazing is it wasn't just for spite it was for right. It was for right. Because Jesus... Had the right to wear the robe of a king. He had the right to be called King of the Jews. Though they were mocking him, what they were doing was acting out the very person that he was, though with their brutality and their anger and their spite. But even in that awful, detestable display of brutality, the true nature of Jesus could not be denied, the one who has the royalty. And so the high priest's outfit now has a blue, a hyacinth, a tecaliph, a purple robe. And Jesus wore the purple robe. Verse 33 going on, he says, You shall make on its hem pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material. All around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe. We get the design pattern here. Bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, all the way around. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord so that he will not die. Oh, that's nice. Can <laughs> you imagine being Aaron and putting that thing on for the first time and hearing the tinkling going, Oh, good. Make sure those bells are tinkling. I don't want to die. I'm going to have to go in here. But see, it wasn't to make sure that he wouldn't die before the Lord, It's so that the people would know that he hadn't died. Do you realize that? That's what's going on there. That they could hear Aaron, the high priest, moving around inside the tabernacle, and they would hear that little tinkling sound. As he's moving around of those bells ringing, and when they heard it, they knew, okay, he's still all right. And then you know, if, I, and you gotta wonder if Aaron had a sense of humor and played jokes on people. You gotta wonder if he would go in there every now and then and just stand still. <laughs>
1: You know, five minutes go by and the people are sweating outside, and then he goes,
0: tickle, 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 tickle. That's what I would have done, and I would have been dead in the heartbeat. So it's a good thing I was never the high priest. But this is how people knew that the high priest was alive in the tabernacle. So let me ask you a question How do you know you're alive in the Lord? How do you know you're alive in the Lord? And the answer is pomegranates and bells. You're going, that's a little stretch pomegranates and bells and gang there's a personal picture here and this is this is what I was looking forward to getting to all night okay this is the thing that I want you to hear this is the best part pomegranates and bells that are around this robe it's how the people knew that Aaron was in the tabernacle that the high priest was on the inside how do we know As the royal priesthood, as Peter calls us, how do we know that we are in the Lord, that we're in that holy place? How do we know? Pomegranates and bells, what do you mean? The pomegranates are fruit, and the bells are witnesses. What do you mean? Listen. In his death and resurrection, Jesus bought us salvation, but in his ascension, when he ascended, he brought us his spirit. Two aspects of this that are so important to understand. We have our salvation. There are a lot of people who have their salvation but have never accepted the gift that he brought to us. He bought the salvation and people will say, great, I'm saved, good, that's it, I'm done, I don't need anything else. And God is saying, but I, but I brought you something else. Something wonderful. Something that works for you here and now. Your salvation is coming, but right now, pomegranates and bells. I brought you pomegranates and bells, fruit and witnesses. Okay, wait, how does this work? What, what does this have to do with anything? Gang, the pomegranate. I had my first pomegranate when I was a kid. It was in elementary school, and a friend of mine brought it in his lunch. I had never seen one before. And he busted that thing open, cracked it open, and in the middle there are all these seeds. The seeds. All, do you realize the pomegranate has more seeds per piece of fruit than any other fruit in the world? More seeds in one piece of fruit. Interesting that God would choose the pomegranate that has this, this picture not only of fruit, but also of these seeds that can produce millions of pomegranates. And it's also interesting to me, and maybe I get out there on this, but that the pomegranate seeds are the juicy part. They are surrounded by blood-red juice. All these seeds surrounded by this, this picture of blood. It's a sweet tasting picture of blood. What are you saying? Listen to this. These little seeds surrounded by sweet blood, red juice, is very interesting. John chapter twelve, verse twenty-four. Jesus said, Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat or, or seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He goes on, John 14, 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is a mind-blowing verse, but listen to it, He who believes in me, the works that I do, He will do also. Jesus healed the deaf. Jesus gave sight to the blind. Jesus caused the lame to walk. Jesus raised the dead. And Jesus said, You see these works that I do, you will do them also. And greater works than these He will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. There's a principle here, gang. That Jesus in His ascension, in His leaving, gave His Spirit. And in giving His Spirit, provided pomegranates, fruit. And within that fruit, seeds that can grow the kingdom in a rapid, radical, outrageous way. Lord, how? How does this work? Not by might, he says. Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah 4.6. And in John 16.7, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Sometimes we sit in church and go, man, I just wish Jesus, if he was here, wouldn't that be great? We'd save him a seat right here on the front row. And that would be Jesus' seat. We'd all just kind of be around Him. And we miss the point. He is here. But He's not just sitting there. He's sitting in Sharon's heart. He said, hey, heart, he's right with Steve. You don't have to go across the church to get to him. You don't have to wait till Sunday to reach him. He's already here and he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who is the Helper? The Holy Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love. It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Pomegranates. A picture of the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit that shows our aliveness in Christ. You want to know if you're alive in Christ? Check the list. Love. I just, I just love and I've got incredible joy let me ask just the question do you think that Phil Jones is alive in Christ those of you who saw Phil and talked to him this last week or on Sunday is this man a picture of someone who's alive in Christ yes how do you know love joy peace one month out from his wife's death to cancer and I've never seen more peace patience Goodness, faithfulness, children. that these are the fruit of the Spirit, the spiritual fruit, that when it's in us, we know, I'm alive in Christ. And really, if you want to make a judgment, and I hate to even use that word, but if, if you're trying to discern, is this person in Christ? Am I receiving spiritual counsel from this person? Before you listen to anything someone says, why don't you look at what they're doing, look at the attitude of their heart, and if you're seeing the fruit of the Spirit, it's a good sign, gang. Good chance that the counsel they're going to give as you pray and, and, and discuss things with them is probably spiritually good. The fruit of the Spirit. Pomegranates. It shows us one is alive in Christ. But what about the bells, though? What's the bells? What that have to do with anything? The bells, my friends, are witnesses. They attested to the fact that the prince was alive. Remember, tinkle, tinkle? You can hear the bells tinkling and you knew, okay, he's alive. So what are the bells? How is this witness? What does that mean? Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. I believe that will be the last place we go today. Yeah. So flip there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Listen very closely to these words. I'll let the scripture speak. Now, concerning the spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware... Paul says that about three things in the scriptures. So this is very important as far as Paul is concerned. I don't want you to be unaware of the spiritual gifts. We've talked about the spiritual fruit. Galatians 5.22, that's the spiritual fruit, but it's different. Spiritual fruit is, is, is what's on us. It's how we behave. It's how we act. It's how we are in the Lord. But now we talk about the spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says, there are a variety of bells, gifts, that is, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why do people have spiritual gifts in the church? There's your verse. For the common good, not for the elevation of the one person. We already have someone elevated in the church, and that's Jesus. But the gifts are given to bless the body. Read on. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. One and the same spirit works all these things Listen carefully Distributing to each one individually Just as he wills The gifts of the spirit Are like tinkling bells On on the robe of of the high priest They ring for the common good of the body They bear witness to the presence of the spirit In a person's life And you may think Well I don't have any spiritual gifts Have you asked the Lord for them? Or for one Have you sought the Lord And said Lord I'm not even sure What my spiritual gifts are The Bible says I, I apparently have some Or one Or I'd like some Could you give me some gifts You know It doesn't bother me When my kids ask for gifts Especially around Christmas time We have them make the list And get it to us Can I have gifts I love, And I love to bless my kids So ask the Lord If you're not sure what your spiritual gift is Or gifts are Ask him Invite him to reveal them to you And understand this And it's critical They are not the same for every believer There are some churches That would rate your spirituality Based on certain gifts That are more obvious than others There are those churches that would say Unless you have the gift of tongues You really aren't as spiritual as someone else. Well, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit distributes to each one individually just as He will, not as I will. It's not my call. It's not your call. It's the Holy Spirit's call to give as He sees fit to whom He sees fit. But He wants to give to everyone. Well, why a bell? In fact, why bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell? Why why this pattern? It's a great pattern to be aware of, gang. Because there is, as I said, a distinction between spiritual fruit and spiritual gifts. They both belong together in the life of the believer. But they both are very important for one without the other. It can be disastrous. Listen as we read on. Let's get down to verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 27. Paul says, Now, now you are Christ's body And individually you are members of it And he is appointed in the church First apostles And second prophets And third teachers Then miracles Then gifts of healing And helps and Administrations Various kinds of tongues Isn't it interesting that tongues falls further down the list And administrations is even above it And yet how many times do you see in, in church Someone stand up and say I have the gift of administration <laughs> And everybody gathers around and goes Oh, Awesome or help that's even above that I have the gift of help you know Russ Pittis has the gift of help and yet no one gathers around Russ and goes man I just gotta watch him make that coffee it's
1: amazing what a spiritual gift
0: and yet it is it is the spirit gives to each as he wills all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? Do you know how awesome it would be in my fleshly mind for Pastor Rick to have the gift of healing. Man, we could blow the walls out of this barn if people knew healing was happening at the bridge. Show up on a Sunday morning, Pastor Rick, boom, you're healed. Woohoo! We can make little T-shirts with my symbol on it, going, you know. I don't have the gift of healing
1: that's why
0: <laughs> thank you Joni for stating the obvious but I don't have that gift there are several of these gifts I am severely lacking in and I can ask and hope and, and maybe you know God will give the right gift at the right well I know he's going to give the right gift and maybe there will be a time in my life where where healing is something that God would allow he hasn't yet I just don't have it But it's his call He says also in verse 30 All do not speak with tongues Do they? What? But But I've been in a church That says if you don't speak in tongues You don't really have the spirit And yet the spirit says Well I don't give it to everybody Some do Some have it Some have this precious gift And yet the spirit says All do not speak with tongues Do they? All do not interpret Do they? but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I I will show you a still more excellent way if we had all bells all the way around if it was just gift, 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 gift and there was no fruit of the Spirit guess what we would have? Noisy, clanging gong sounds. It's cool because you have these little pomegranates in between the bells that allow the bells to sound beautiful as they surround that high priest. In the same way in the fellowship of the church, you have these spiritual gifts, but also intermingled with spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, along with the gifts all together, allowing the gifts to sound beautiful, while the fruit maintains that balance in the body. And that's the way he set it out. It's both. Verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, if I'm a bell without a pomegranate, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries, I have all knowledge and all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love I am nothing. By the way, in Galatians 5.22, the word love comes first in the list. And I don't think that's an accident. Because it seems to me that love is the most precious of the spiritual fruit. And all the rest of the fruit flows out from that one. You have love, and from love comes the joy and the peace and the patience and the gentleness and faithfulness to all the others. When the bell witness is interchanged with the fruit of love, both the sound and the picture are beautiful in Christ. Bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, fruit and witness. Fruit of the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit, the gifts. The two together signify someone who is truly alive in Christ. And I want to stop there because I want you to ponder that for this week. Let's pray. Father you showed me something this week I hadn't thought of before hadn't seen before and that is in the the spiritual life that you've given us and in the gift of the Holy Spirit that you've given us there are really these two distinct gifts the gifts of fruit that that goes to the very core of our our nature and our character and our behavior It, it affects who we are as your spirit works in us And we begin to have the spiritual fruit produced in us. And the spiritual gifts, Father, that you give and you pour out on the body. And I think so often we can chase after one or the other and you say, I've I've given both, bells and pomegranates. I've given gifts and I've given fruit. Father, I, I just pray, I just ask that you would bless the bridge fellowship with both with both Father yes Lord we, we pray that you would pour out your gifts on this body for the common good that there would be healing that there that there would be teaching and there would be administration and helps and all that we, we've read that these things would happen here but Father that they would be surrounded with sweet fruit We would never become a fellowship that is so interested and excited about our gifts, showing them off and and puffing ourselves up. But what would be seen here and felt and known as true and real and right is your love and your peace and your joy. Father, intertwine The fruit and the witness, the gifts, and the character of the Spirit in us. And take us, Lord, another step as we walk out our faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.